This is the podcast Surgery IC Rounds. My name is Jeff Guy. I am an associate professor of surgery at Vanderbilt University Medical Center and the director of the burn unit there. Today is Monday, the 31st of March 2008. The topic that I'd like to discuss is traumatic shock and fluid resuscitation. Most people think that they have a pretty good concept of what shock really represents or what it means and it's important to realize that shock is not defined by a blood pressure. Shock is really defined as the inadequate delivery of oxygen to various tissues and this inadequate delivery of, of, of oxygen to different cells of, of be it the heart, the, the, the lung, the kidney, the brain actually will cause the cells to not function properly when cells don't function properly tissues don't prop function properly then organs don't function properly and then you get into conditions such as multi-organ dysfunction and even death the care delivered in, in the first several minutes after a patient is injured is really essential uh, in determining the trajectory of how a patient's going to do uh, even after they've been in, uh, taken to a, a local hospital and have had their, their source of their, their blood loss arrested um, and uh, the patient's resuscitated. Allowing a patient to sit into a, a state of shock um, can certainly lead to problems. Now, as I said, shock is really not defined by uh, a particular blood pressure. A patient could have a heart rate that's normal. They could have a blood pressure that's normal. Now, the heart rate may be normal in somebody who, for instance, on, is on a, a medication such as like a cardiazem or a beta blocker or digoxin, uh, something that's providing some cardiac protection. The blood pressure might be normal. If you look at the, the tenements of advanced trauma life support, which is the, the course that most physicians take who may be taking providing any emergency care to trauma victims, and it's of course uh, produced and, and disseminated by the American College of Surgeons, you really don't see a real significant drop in the blood pressure until the patient's down to about grade 3 hemorrhagic shock. And by then the patient's really lost uh, at least a quarter, and in some cases up to a third of, of their blood volume before they really start manifesting um, problems of uh, hemodynamic lability um, or uh, hypotension. And the patient might be, if they have a normal heart rate and normal blood pressure, we might say that they're stable. And I, I really dissuade people from using uh, the word stable in defining patients because I like to say that stable is a place where you keep your horses. Patients can be compensated or uncompensated. Now think about that is that you can have a person who has lost you know, perhaps 15-20% of their blood volume and has not really begun to manifest problems such as tachycardia or hypotension. That's not to say that they're not in shock, and that's not to say that they're not potentially in harm's way, but they have adaptive mechanisms in their body to try to maintain normality, to try to maintain their heart rate, try to maintain their blood pressure. And these could be an increase perhaps in the cardiac output, perhaps an increase in the stroke volume, some vasoconstriction of the peripheral vascular beds, shunting blood away from organs that, that are not potentially vital, perhaps the mesenteric uh, um, blood flow to organs that are more vital, such as the heart, the brain, and the kidneys, or perhaps even the skeletal muscle and someone's in a, a fight or flight response. So don't use the term stable. Now our ability to compensate decreases with age, such that if you gave a um, uh, 17 or an 18 year old uh, male patient a particular form of trauma they may or, you know, say a lacerated spleen or even a ruptured spleen they may be able to compensate for that reasonably well uh, however give that same 
uh, injury to a, a patient who perhaps is 80 years old, has diabetes, has atherosclerotic coronary disease, perhaps a previous MI, they're not going to tolerate that same magnitude of uh, injury or insult uh, as well, and therefore their ability to compensate will be less. Now there are different types of shock, and, and um, we can talk about things such as cardiogenic shock, septic shock, traumatic shock, neurogenic shock, and even psychogenic shock. That's one schema of um, um, shock classifications that you may hear. Other uh, textbooks may talk uh, about different types of shock that are actually more physiological in their description, and this would be hypovolemic shock. And clearly, we're, in this case, we're talking about traumatic blood loss and hypovolemic. Certainly makes one think of uh, a patient's had blood loss, either from something like an open femur fracture, a ruptured spleen, or a gunshot wound uh, with an injury to, say, the femoral artery. Those are reasonably obvious forms of hypovolemic shock. Other perhaps less obvious forms of hypovolemic shock perhaps could be the diabetic who is in diabetic ketoacidosis and is in hypovolemia uh, due to a polyuria, uh, a patient who uh, has had uh, profound GI blood losses from uh, um, a gastrointestinal infection. It could be a person who has been exposed to the elements, uh, perhaps a, a, a camper who is, um, or a a person who's not had uh, fresh water but exposed to uh, camping conditions perhaps in the desert or uh, in an arid climate and be dehydrated hypovolemic in those circumstances. Now obstructive forms of shock, um, the two types that you think typically from this would be patients who have something like a cardiac tamponade or something like a tension pneumothorax. And the reason why we call this obstructive forms of shock is because these are conditions which obstruct the either inflow or outflow of blood to the heart. The blood cannot pump blood, the heart cannot pump blood it never receives. So for instance, if somebody develops a tension pneumothorax and say they have a stab wound in the left chest, they've got air leaking from the lung, it creates uh, enough positive pressure in the left hemithorax that it shifts the heart in the mediastinum uh, across the midline. Well, what it does this, it actually twists the vena cava to such a degree that it occludes inflow to the um, uh, right side of the heart from the vena cava and obviously this will result in a, in a uh, rather precipitous drop in the cardiac output. This is a form of obstructive shock. Another form of obstructive shock could be for instance somebody who has say, a cardiac tamponade and as that pericardium fills with blood it really uh, basically squeezes the heart and prevents the heart from really going into a resting phase and allowing the heart to fill. You could have other forms of obstructive uh, uh, shock, such as somebody who's had uh, a pulmonary embolism, and you've got um, an outflow obstruction uh, to the right ventricle uh, in the form of, a, say, a saddle embolus. Those are just some examples of hypovolemic shock. Cardiogenic shock, cardiogenic, uh, it is what it sounds like, and that is uh, shock um, due to a uh, low cardiac output, due to intrinsic injury uh, or illness uh, to the heart. This could be somebody who's uh, suffered acute coronary syndrome. This could be somebody who's had a uh, uh, um, cardiac contusion from blunt force trauma. Um, it could even be somebody uh, who may have myocardial stunning uh, from something like a major burn injury, and, and that would be a form of shock that's cardiogenic and not particularly related to loss of volume. Distributive shock is a type of shock that we typically would classify somebody who has septic shock or neurogenic shock. And in those two conditions, you have 
um, uh, vasodilatation of the peripheral vascular tree and what this does is basically increases the size of the vessel uh, and, sh and in septic shock you also have third space fluid losses and so forth in septic shock you have both hypovolemic and distributive shock in neurogenic shock you lose sympathetic tone to the blood vessels the blood vessels may vasodilate will vasodilate typically significantly enlarging the intravascular volume and even though you may not have lost a single drop of blood or plasma your your intravascular volume may have increased by 30 or 40 percent and therefore you have a relative hypovolemia and that's a form of distributive shock so when we ask the question what is traumatic shock which one of these little categories does it fit in well it can fit in several of these categories um, traumatic shock can actually result in all four types of these types if you think about airway uh, problems uh, can result in hypoxia and conditions that may lead to that are things like maxillofacial trauma or laryngeal injury or high cervical spinal cord injury. Breathing problems can lead to hypoxia uh, and things such as pneumothorax or hemothorax or a bronchial injury. Circulatory problems uh, leading to um, causes of shock um, can cause hemorrhagic shock and that can be like a, a rupture of thoracic aorta, splenic rupture. Obstruction of the flow, again, is a circulatory problem, and this could be like an air embolism, a cardiac tamponade, or tension in the thorax. Circulatory problems can also lead, as far as circulation goes, when we think about the air, airway breathing circulation elements of a uh, trauma evaluation, um, um, poor cardiac function uh, from cardiac contusion, and again, using the ABCs of trauma still under circulation, inappropriate vas vasodilatation, neurogenic shock, somebody who might have a spinal cord injury and they lose that sympathetic uh, input from above and um, uh, resulting in vasodilatation and uh, shock. Now, I don't want to dwell too much on this, but some of the things that you can do for assessment obviously has to be rather rapid. You can go up and feel somebody in their capillary refill of their fingers or their kneecaps. They've got poor capillary refill. Obviously, they've got poor perfusion of their peripheral beds, that they're perhaps vasoconstricting and shunting blood. Palpation of peripheral pulses is a very simple and straightforward way of getting a rapid assessment of somebody's blood pressure. This is obviously very good in a crisis circumstance um, um, where uh, or a tactical situation where somebody may be shooting at you or you, you may be at risk of, of harm. But somebody who has a carotid, blood, a carotid pulse has a blood pressure of at least 60 millimeters of mercury. person who has a femoral pulse their systolic blood pressure is at least 70 millimeters of mercury and somebody who has a radial pulse their blood pressure is at least 80 millimeters of mercury and you want to check for pulses in multiple extremities because somebody could have a decreased perfusion in say their right arm because they have an injury to their brachial artery uh, from a, like a supracondylar fracture or a hematoma so just because they don't have a radial pulse on the right doesn't necessarily mean that they have a systemic blood pressure of less than 80 um, because they may have an, a strong pulse in the contralateral limb. Um, the treatment for hypovolemic shock is seemingly straightforward um, and that's really you have two objectives. One is, this is we're talking about trauma hypovolemic shock or hemorrhagic shock. One is you want to stop the bleeding and two is you want to restore the blood volume. Now, there are several ways you can stop the bleeding in a pre-hospital setting. The most obvious would be um, something like direct pressure. If direct pressure fails, uh, then you get into the more complex ideas of using things like tourniquets for extremity injuries or the application of approved topical hemostatic agents like quick clot or hemicon. 
Now, restoring the blood volume, again, we think we have a reasonably good understanding of this. Um, I can't help but think of um, a professor of surgery of mine when I was a third-year resident, and he was talking about how we don't have a good understanding about burns because we don't have a uniform treatment. And he said, well, you know, if you take something like an appendicitis, we all agree what the appropriate treatment for an appendicitis is. Well, that was in... 1994 he said that, and now in 2008 I don't think we have a uniform agreement on what the appropriate treatment for an appendicitis is, and it's interesting how times change. But we think by restoring the blood volume we're doing well by the patient. Well how do we restore the blood volume? What instruments do we use? What types of fluids do we use? And, and what is our endpoints for resuscitation? And those are some of the topics that we're going to cover next. Stopping the bleeding we talked about, we want to restore that blood volume. Um, um, now, fluid resuscitation typically has historically been with lactate ringers or normal saline. Now, normal saline has been advantageous because you can actually give packed red blood cells with it. That is changing regionally based on the type of preservatives that are being used with your packed red blood cells. So you want to check with your blood bank folks about that. Now, these two solutions, lactate ringers and normal saline, are essentially identical in their ability to increase intravascular fluid volume. Now, this is perhaps something we should go back and talk about as far as fluids and electrolytes, but for an injured patient, there's typically a, a rule of three to one, and that is is that if you want to replace a liter, you typically have to give three liters of, of crystalloid. Now, this goes back to some of the studies done by Shires, and we'll talk about those a little bit later, but the reality is is that you, if you give somebody a liter of saline or LR now, only about 250 cc's, or at most 333 cc's of that is going to be intravascular at the end of an hour. So you have to give more than you actually have lost uh, in those circumstances. Now, using large amounts of normal saline will develop a condition called an acidosis. And acidosis uh, typically occurs when you're using large amounts of normal saline in a short period of time. And the reason for this is, is that, number one, saline is an acidic solution. Number two, saline has large amounts of chloride in it. And that chloride will lead to a condition called a hyperchloremic metabolic acidosis. When we look at the fluid side by side, lactated ringers has a pH of 6.7. The pH of normal saline is 6. Keep in mind, that's on a logarithmic scale. Sodium for lactated ringers is 130, in contrast to the sodium of normal saline at 154. The chloride in LR is 109. The chloride in saline is 154. In addition to the sodium and the chloride, lactated ringers has lactate at 28 milliequivalents per liter. Um, chloride is 3, bicarbonate. Uh, potassium is 4 and has an osmolality of 279. Now some people would advocate normal saline in a patient with traumatic brain injury because they say it's hyperosmolar. Well it's only 308 milliosms and if you want to try to create a hyperosmolar circumstance there are clearly uh, more efficient ways and more effective ways of uh, doing that. Now the origins of fluid resuscitation we can really look back to the Vietnam War and we really stand on the shoulders of giants such as Dr. Shires, Moyers, and Moss and large volume resuscitation with isotonic fluids seemed to improve survival and, and fluids were also needed to replace some of the interstitial fluids and when you look at some of the initial work by Dr. Shires what they did was they they took dogs and they bled them into shock uh, and after the dogs were in shock for a certain period of time, they basically gave those animals back the blood that they had taken out of them. 
And then they took another group of animals and they bled them into shock. In addition to giving them back their their shed blood volume, they also gave them back crystalloid solutions, such as LR, normal saline. And the dogs who received the blood and the crystalloid did better. Um, and it was these early investigations that recommended fluid replacement of three times the volume of blood loss. So if you anticipated that your patient lost three, excuse me, lost a liter of blood, in order to fluid resuscitate uh, for that liter of blood loss, you had to give the three liters of crystalloid. And that's where that three to one rule came from. And some would argue that it's even a four to one rule, that when you look at somebody who is uh, critically ill or injured, that they're, they have a, a greater capillary leak and therefore instead of 333 cc's of every liter staying intravascular only about 250 cc's of it stays intravascular and this is also the predicate in which ATLS recommends giving patient two liters of crystalloid and if they don't respond to that then start following that with packed red blood cells well, let's take a little side trip for this and ask, does this make any sense? Well, if you imagine that you have somebody who, you have two twins, you have a, a good twin and an evil twin, and they're identically, uh, they're, they're identical individuals, and person A, you stab or whatever, and you drop, say, a liter and a half or two liters of blood, you put the patient in a shock, and before you stab either one of these folks, you end up getting a hemoglobin level on them, a hematocrit, and the hemoglobin's 15. Person one, you stab, drop a liter and a half of blood. They're clearly in hypovolemic shock, and you take them directly into the hospital. And as soon as they hit the door there, and they're, they have a blood pressure, they went from 120 over 80 to 60 over palpation. Before anybody does the ABCs or all the appropriate therapy, they draw a hemoglobin level. And what is the hemoglobin level? The hemoglobin is 15, even though the patient's lost a significant amount of their blood volume. Well, how can that possibly be? Well, because hemoglobin, you'll remember, is the units is grams per deciliter. Normal is 15 grams per deciliter. It's a concentration. You could take a bottle of, of, of Coke, Coca-Cola, drink half of it, and the concentration in the, the, the half that remains is not any less. The bottle is half full, but the concentration remains the same. And when you measure a hemoglobin level, you're measuring a concentration. Now let's take the second twin, and, and he ends up getting stabbed and losing an, a liter and a half of blood, but instead of taking him straight into the emergency room, he's left to lay in a dumpster or what have you um, um, in a back alley. And then somebody finds him, they bring him in uh, an hour later, what have you, and somebody draws a hemoglobin level as soon as they hit the door. And what do they find when they get that hemoglobin level? Instead of 15, which was the pre-stabbing hemoglobin, say the hemoglobin level is now 6. He has not gotten a single drop of IV fluid. Well, how could that possibly be? How could he have a hemoglobin of 6? Well, remember, it's still a concentration, and his hemoglobin is less concentrated. What has gone on? Well, this is what I actually call almost an auto-resuscitation, because when a person is in that much shock, the body basically tries to resuscitate itself, hence the term I call auto-resuscitation. It takes fluid from the interstitial space, it takes fluid from the intracellular space, and it moves it into the intravascular space. So you're robbing two other spaces, the intracellular and the interstitial space, to expand the intravascular space, and hence you see the dilution of the hemoglobin concentration. I live about 
two miles from a very historic site here in, in, in Franklin, Tennessee, where I live, in a suburb of, of Nashville, Tennessee. And there was this is where the Battle of Franklin was fought, a very, very bloody Civil War battle. Thousands and thousands of men lost their life on this battlefield on a really uh, bloody evening uh, in the 19th century. And when you look at some of the photographs of the war dead who had to lay on that battlefield and the folks had to go back and to claim their war dead, their, their families, because these war, this war was fought in people's backyards, basically, the bodies were bloated and swollen. And it's not that they were in a trauma center and attached to a level one, but that loss of fluid, that edema that we typically see, is not abnormal whether we give patients fluids or not. So this is the idea that when we resuscitate people that we have to resuscitate all three of those compartments, the intravascular uh, compartment, the interstitial compartment, and the intracellular compartment. And this is what uh, Dr. Shires explained back in the 60s. Well, we said this idea of uh, large volume or aggressive fluid resuscitation really started in the 60s, and uh, you know that's been almost 40 years. If this were a drop-dead uh, type of thing or you know an obvious really good science, you know, it should not be really debated almost 40 years later. Uh, there should be ample evidence. And, and if early fluids were used widely in Vietnam conflict as a fluid of choice for massive fluid resuscitation, the mortality rates, though, should be better. Now, the mortality rates failed to improve compared to other conflicts. Now, yes, the mortality rate in general for a, a combat casualty was better in Vietnam than in World War II, but there are some other factors involved, perhaps more rapid transport to definitive surgical care with the use of aeromedical transport. But the real impact appears to be, based on the epidemiological research, was the widespread use of antibiotics, which was not uh, readily available in World War, World War II. The other thing that we saw uh, from early resuscitation in Vietnam was the first description of Da Nang lung. And this was described in a naval field hospital in Da Nang, Vietnam. And they used this to describe a common finding in severely injured patients who were aggressively fluid resuscitated. And, and now we would call this uh, uh, ARDS. Um, now, ag ag aggressive fluid resuscitation, many are questioning this approach. And I think the reason why many people are questioning this approach because as surgeons, we either on again or off again, we use large, hideous amounts of fluid resuscitation. And Aristotle said all things in moderation. Uh, the basic and clinical science failed to conclusively support the approach of this massive fluid resuscitation. People end up getting um, you know, edema in their lungs, uh, uh, aggravating ARDS, abdominal compartment syndrome, um, and um, really a lot of morbidity. And is the idea of restricting or, uh, fluids in a traumatically injured patient new? Well, not really. Cannon and co-workers really first described this in 1918. Now, I want you to think about what he said. He said, Cannon and their colleagues in the Journal of the American Medical Association, 90 years ago, and I'm quoting now, that inaccessible or uncontrolled sources of blood loss should not be treated with IV fluids until the time of surgical control. End of the quote. So, giving somebody fluids while they've got bleeding going on is not going to help their bleeding. 
Now, there was a landmark paper uh, by Bickle and co-workers in New England Journal of Medicine in 1994, and a lot of folks in the trauma community uh, typically call this the Maddox paper because the senior author on this was Dr. Ken Maddox from Houston. And what they advocated that there was a survival advantage uh, in patients who had a delayed resuscitation following penetrating torso trauma. Penetrating torso trauma. So what Maddox and his colleagues had the wisdom to do is actually recognize that we stand on the shoulders of giants. Penetrating torso trauma, this is the same group of patients that Cannon recommended holding back on back in 1918, not to aggressively fluid resuscitate these people. Now, there have been animal trials. Mapstone and co-workers in Journal of Trauma in 2003 looked at 52 different animal trials, and fluid resuscitation seemed to decrease the risk of death in models of severe hemorrhage with a relative risk factor of 0.48. But there was an increased risk of death in those with less severe hemorrhage. Now, why would this provide an advantage? Well, if you think about um, the way that I, I try to describe this in, in a very graphic way, is take a bottled water and and drink a third or half of the bottled water. Now you've got uh, a level that's half full. Now, to uh, don't have the lid on it, but to increase the the pressure to get that level up, what do you need to do is you need to increase the pressure. So if you squeeze that bottle, you'll bring that fluid level back up. Now take that same bottle of water and stab it with a knife or a pen or whatever to create a hole in it. And you're you're leaking out that blood vessel. Okay, you're, that that um, that vessel being the bottled water, but that's kind of mimicking a blood vessel. And as you put more pressure on that and increase the pressure inside that bottle, what happens to the fluid soaking out, basically now squirting out the, the hole in the vessel, the vessel being the bottled water. It's increasing. You're getting water all over yourself. Well, the same thing's happening when you're increasing the blood pressure by fluid resuscitation in a person who has something like penetrating torso trauma, as described in the Bickel paper and theorized by Cannon back in 1918, is that you've got this uncontrolled hemorrhage, you're increasing the blood pressure, and you're increasing the hydrostatic pressure across that arteriotomy. Therefore, what does that do? That increases blood loss. Furthermore, there are things in blood other than hemoglobin uh, and red blood cells. There are coagulation factors. And as you are pouring in the salt water, what are you doing? You're diluting the coagulation factors. So you're increasing the hydrostatic pressure, and you're diluting the coagulation factors, and you're basically making a setting for increased hemorrhage. Are these new ideas? And I am just stunned that people continue to find that this is a new concept. Remember, the Bickel paper was published in, the, in a small magazine, note sarcasm, uh, known as the New England Journal of Medicine, uh, which is not an infallible journal, but certainly the most prestigious, one of the most prestigious medical journals in the world, in 1994. For those who have been asleep at the wheel, it's now 2008 and people are still arguing about the merits of a concept of permissive hypotension, particularly in the case of penetrating uh, trauma. Now, inflammation, excuse me, fluids can result in some problems of inflammation, and there have been some recent papers published, I believe, in the Journal of Trauma that looks at the different types of uh, fluids, and can they basically aggravate uh, inf uh, systemic inflammation, or what we would call a SIR, systemic inflammatory response syndrome. Why is inflammation bad? Well, the way, again, I'll look at this, and if you look at the other podcasts we've described this, particularly in regards to sepsis and septic shock, is that if you have a campfire in the forest, 
and you set the forest on fire, you can put out the campfire, you still have a pretty big fire on your hands. Well, once you get the body's response, the entire body responding in a pro-inflammatory setting, it really sets one up for multi-organ dysfunction. And certain fluids may actually promote cellular injury by aggravating or promoting the process of inflammation. Um, the resuscitation injury has actually been looked at by the Institute of Medicine in 1999, and they found that different lactate ringer isomers can actually um, be uh, used to uh, one isomer is perhaps uh, perhaps more protective than another isomer. Now, isomers, if you look at your hands, you hold your hands out in front of you, both hands are identical except for one's a mirror image, and your hands are basically isomers. One's a left, your left hand is a left isomer, your right hand is a right isomer. And there are molecules that are basically isomers, uh, being basically the same molecule but mere images of themselves. Uh, I don't want to make this an organic chemistry um, lesson because I don't want to have, I don't want to relive my organic chemistry years. But this concept of resuscitation injury has gained attention over the past several years. And like I said, the Institute of Medicine described in detail the wide spectrum of adverse problems that can occur following resuscitative uh, efforts. And they detailed this in uh, um, the report of the Institute of Medicine uh, in uh, 1999 under the Committee on Fluid Resuscitation for Combat Casualties. So since that report, there has been a significant number of uh, studies that have provided evidence to support this idea that the injury of cells is influenced not only by the state of shock, but also by the resuscitation strategies that we use to treat the shock. So we have heard the expression that sometimes it's not, you know, you the, it's what's worse, the disease or the treatment. And in some cases, the treatment may be as bad as the disease, particularly if we do an inappropriate resuscitation. Now this isn't just my opinion, this is only the Institute of Medicine. Now, as we said, there's obviously increasing scientific evidence that cellular functions are influenced by the infusion of resuscitation fluids. We often think of these salt waters that we administer either in the form of latrine ringers or normal saline as just very innocuous and uh, not able to provide potential harm, despite the fact that they cause really significant mechanical problems in the form of pulmonary edema or abdominal compartment syndrome. They can also aggravate this inflammatory response syndrome. And there are key variables that govern these variable responses, including the composition of the fluids, the tonicity of the fluids, the duration of exposure, the types of cells that are exposed, or the presence or absence of infection or inflammation, the presence or absence of a second hit in regards to another form of injury, and the timing of fluid resuscitation. All will basically put a patient on a different trajectory on how well they're going to do with the resuscitation. Now looking back at what are some of the basic science issues is that Resuscitation has an impact on human white blood cells. Um, it's able to, uh, we're able to find different markers of cellular injury on the various organs. We see uh, differences in, in various gene regulations. Um, and it gets us the idea of different types of pharmacological resuscitation. And perhaps the one that's perhaps talked about the most or looked at the most is the use of hypertonic saline. And the uh, use of hypertonic saline resuscitation for hemorrhage was really uh, described first in the uh, early 1980s. And uh, if you look at articles by Velasco in the American Journal of Physiology in 1980, uh, as well as 
an article by uh, De Filippe and colleagues in Lancet in uh, 1980, Volume 2, page 1002. They were really some of the first studies that really reported uh, the hyperosmotic uh, solutions of sodium chloride were capable of rapidly expanding the plasma volume after major blood loss. And the reason for this is because it was able to uh, rapidly uh, mobilize fluids in the interstitial and in the vascular um, into the vascular space and remember we talked about earlier kind of that robbing Peter to pay Paul part of that auto resuscitation that we see this is kind of jump starting it and it 250 cc's of seven and a half saline can achieve results comparable with resuscitation to two to three liters of normal saline uh, now keep in mind we said that you know the studies of Shires you know it seems kind of in conflict to what Shire showed in the 60s because didn't I tell you earlier that when he had the dogs and gave them back their fluid and the blood, they did better than just those who got the blood? And therefore, remember when we talked about the Shires data, that I said, didn't we have to also resuscitate the interstitial in the, in the intracellular spaces to hopefully abrogate some of the development of shock and organ dysfunction? Well, some of the ideas by the use of hypertonic saline are particularly useful in pre-hospital environments where the amount of... Uh, intravenous fluids is limited, particularly in tactical situations uh, where uh, a combat medic may have to basically carry everything in and out on it, on his back and typically these combat medics are carrying 45 pounds of gear so carrying you know three or four liters of saline becomes logistically impractical when they can carry a 250 or a 500 cc bag of seven and a half normal saline now, hypertonic saline has been used in a variety of circumstances, and thousands of papers have been uh, contributed in the literature. Uh, there are eight double-blind randomized trials that evaluate hypertonic saline or hypertonic saline of dextran for pre-hospital or emergency department treatment of traumatic hypotension. Now, there have been improved rates of survival with hypertonic saline were reported with hypertonic saline in seven of eight trials although statistically significant improvement in overall survival was really only seen in one trial. When you look at the literature, there's really been remarkable absence of any uh, serious adverse uh, effects of the administration of hypertonic saline in more than a thousand trauma and surgical patients. No increase in the incidence of hypernatremic seizures, no increase of bleeding or blood transfusion requirements, no reported coagulopathies, renal failure, cardiac arrhythmias, or central pontine myelinitis have been attributed to the hypertonic resuscitation in trauma patients. Um, now these trials that have used hypertonic saline as a volume expander, but a more uh, uh, advantageous effect of hypertonic saline may be the fact that it attenuates immune-mediated cellular injury. What does this mean? Well, remember we talked about the surge response. It may be the fact that using hypertonic saline may downregulate uh, or attenuate some of this immune-mediated cellular injury. And there's a lot of studies that have looked at immune-mediated cellular injury, neutrophil excitation, neutrophil endothelial binding, lung damage, bowel injury, and so forth. If you want a detailed script of this, I, I would really encourage you to do an online search because there's really a large number of papers here. Now, let's go back and look at fluid resuscitation for combat casualties. There has been consensus conferences. The control of hemorrhage and judicious resuscitation are critical elements of early battlefield care. Um, the military has an uh, organization called the 
Committee on Tactical Combat Casualty Care. It's a standing committee in the Army, the Air Force, Navy, Marines, and actually one of the organizations that I represent, uh, Pre-Hospital Trauma Life Support, actually has uh, representation on that committee. The military has actually tried to look at methods or the best method to resuscitate the uh, uh, injured soldier, uh, what they call the casualty. And the first meeting was under the supervision of the Institute of Medicine, and this occurred in 1998. And the report concluded that current resuscitation strategies were inadequate, potentially harmful, and needed radical change. And this was in 1998, and you think about how we resuscitated patients, that was typical, give them a couple of liters of fluid and start thinking about giving them blood. Um, it's identified numerous areas of future research and recommended that combat casualties should be resuscitated with a bolus of 250 cc's of 7.5% normal, uh, normal saline. The problem is in the United States that the Food and Drug Administration has not approved this fluid for clinical use. That doesn't mean it can't be used in a combat scenario, particularly since it's not being used in the United States. Um, there was a follow-up meeting in June of 2001, and this was held at the Uniformed Services University. And clinical recommendations uh, were basically um, made to adhere to FDA uh, standards of things that could be used in the United States, and clinical recommendations were made including who it should and should not be resuscitated, endpoints resuscitation, and the optimal fluid. Um, in this situation, as I said, the choices were deliberately limited to FDA-approved agents. And for those of you who uh, are living or uh, living and practicing medicine not in the United States, the FDA is our regulatory agency that determines it's the Food and Drug Administration. And they were looking at drugs that we can only use in the U.S., and, and they looked at drugs such as uh, head of starch, was narrowly recommended as a fluid of choice for use in, in the battlefield. Now the battlefield is not in the streets. That's two different settings, two different types of injuries. And uh, like I said, in that situation, head of starch was narrowly recommended as a fluid of choice for the battlefield. In a third meeting that occurred in October of 2001 in Toronto, the scope was wide to include fluids that were available in other NATO countries, even if the fluid was not approved by the FDA in the United States. At this meeting, a combination of 7.5 normal saline and as well as 6% uh, dextran uh, were recommended as initial fluid of choice. At all these meetings, the experts agreed that aggressive fluid resuscitation here is deleterious, and ideal fluid is not yet available. And low volume resuscitation, hypertonic, colloid, or combination of those, low volume resuscitation is the most suitable choice for military needs. Again, those of you who are civilian medics don't automatically take that we need to be using hypertonic saline in a civilian setting. As soon as you start carrying all of your gear on your back through the desert day after day after day, that is a different logistical setting. And the logistics of providing crystalloid resuscitation are clearly taken into consideration for these recommendations. Same thing, those of you who are military providers and you see somebody in a civilian setting getting crystalloid, that's not to mean that they're doing it incorrectly. In fact, from a physiological standpoint, it may actually um, be um, um, more physiological when we look at the studies by Shires back in the 60s. Uh, and this information, uh, if you look at the Journal of Trauma, there was a um, um, supplement that uh, they, they uh, distributed back in May of 2003 that really went over all of the different military uh, methods of uh, fluid resuscitation.
Now we talked about the um, Committee on Tactical Combat Casualty Care. This is known as T-TRI-C. Uh, this is a U.S. military group uh, made up of a standing committee of the Army, the Air Force, Navy, the Marines, and uh, uh, like I said, our, our PHTLS group has a membership on this committee. And the T-TRI-C advocates the use of permissive hypotension for the reasons we've already talked about. And this is to administer low-volume resuscitation to keep the casualty alive with a palpable pulse or consciousness, but not to restore the blood pressure to normal until definitive control of hemorrhage. So basically what they do is they walk up to the patient, if they're conscious and have a radial pulse, they're not getting IVs and they're not doing all of that. They just transport the patient. Early aggressive fluid resuscitation in the absence of hemorrhage control is no longer recommended. If you don't have hemorrhage control, don't start aggressive fluid resuscitation. As a result, resuscitation in combat zones is more selective with fluids given only as needed. Low volume resuscitation and aims for practical endpoints such as a palpable pulse. Um, colloid fluids, uh, solutions such as uh, colloid solutions. That's kind of a misnomer. Colloid fluids such as Hespan are replacing conventional crystalloids for early resuscitation, minimizing the logistical burden. And the logistical burden is carrying the materials on your back. So again, this is a, a military practice and not a civilian practice. And again, early hemorrhage control is being prioritized over aggressive fluid resuscitation. However, when we go back to the papers about the Maddox paper, that was a civilian EMS paper in Houston. Uh, so the permissive hypotension is clearly in play in the civilian setting, but the resuscitation using hypertonic over crystalloid, I would say that the jury is probably still out on that. We do have good evidence, though, as we've already talked about, about attenuation of a surge response with hypertonic resuscitation, but those hypertonic fluids I don't believe are as high as seven and a half percent. As compared to lactated ringers, hypertonic saline causes suppression of this neutrophil oxidative burst activity, and this decreases things we talked about, like neutrophil endothelial adhesions, and attenuates the immune-mediated cellular injury. So that's all very good, uh, and the jury is still out on that. Um, uh, stay tuned because. Um, I think that we're going to see more papers talking about hypertonic saline and uh, hemorrhagic fluid resuscitation and as to whether that will be approved by the Food and Drug Administration in the United States. You've been listening to the podcast Surgery IC Rounds. Um, like I said, my name is Jeff Guy um, at Vanderbilt University. Uh, the website for the podcast is... Um, www.icrounds.com. You can get it off iTunes. Just search on IC Rounds. And the webpage that we use for our residents at Vanderbilt is burndoc.com and burndoc.net. Thank you for downloading and have a good evening.